Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Ovik Roy, who I'm very excited to have on the show. I've known Ovik for a number of years. We've been arguing healthcare with each other since before Obamacare was even a thing. He rose pretty quickly through the ranks of Republican policy wonks. He became an advisor to Mitt Romney in 2012. He was policy director for Rick Perry in 2016, then went over to Marco Rubio's campaign. And then as Donald Trump took over the Republican primary and ultimately took over the party and then the country, broke with the Republican Party and founded a really fascinating new think tank that is trying to create a conservatism that is more inclusive and more focused around social mobility and equal opportunity. That think tank is called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. We cover a lot in this episode. The first half, roughly, is about his journey through Republican politics, his split from the Republican Party more recently. We talk about Trump. We talk about what it would mean to have a conservatism that was much more focused on diversity, why conservatism has had so much trouble in embracing the newer, more multicultural America. It's a good discussion about the ways in which the innovator's dilemma might apply to this problem. And then we talk a lot about healthcare. We get pretty deep into the weeds of it, as I often do with Ovik, but I think it's a really useful conversation. He is one of the Republicans who actually does think very hard about healthcare policy and really does care about it. As we talk about, that is not true for everybody on that issue. I think it's a little bit rare in Republican circles for healthcare to be a priority, but for him it really is. And he has interesting thoughts on it and is certainly someone who is influential among Republicans on the Hill on this. So he is very much worth listening to. As always, please share the podcast with your friends on Facebook, on Twitter, on email. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds. If you like the healthcare discussion here, you will love The Weeds. And finally, keep your guest requests coming to me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Without further ado, here's Ovik Roy. Ovik Roy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's my favorite podcast on the internet. I've even rated it on iTunes. I love oh, it so much. I, I bet uh, you say that to all the podcast hosts. <laughs> Absolutely not. So you and I have been arguing about healthcare since before Obamacare was even a thing. We go way back. But before we get into that, and I do want to talk a lot about healthcare here, you've had a pretty intense couple of years. And, and let me maybe sketch your biography as I know it, and then you can fill in the, the gaps here. This sounds scary. You used to be on Wall Street. Yeah, that's true. Doing healthcare investing. And then you began writing about healthcare policy from a, a more free market perspective. Mm -hmm. In 2012, you began advising Mitt Romney. You're on one of his advisory boards on healthcare. Mm -hmm. Then you were policy director for Rick Perry mm -hmm. in the 2016 campaign, uh, where you wrote some incredibly well-received and powerful speeches for him. And then Donald Trump 
happened. And that's taking your life in a, in a bit of a different path. So talk to me a little bit about that. Tell me where you are now, not professionally, but in your relationship with the right, in your relationship with healthcare policy, just in your relationship with politics in general. That's a, a big question. And in there you could uh, unpack in a lot of different ways. The key thing for me about the Trump moment has been for me, it's not really a moment that's about Trump. It's about currents that have led us to Trump. I mean, what is it about uh, the politics of our time and particularly the politics of the Republican Party and the conservative movement of our time that has made Trump such an appealing and consequential figure? And that's the way I've tried to think about it. I, I think a lot of people on the right who didn't like Trump, particularly the never Trumpers, would say, well, you know, this Trump, he's just so terrible. Once he flames out, then Republicans will just kind of return to their regularly scheduled programming. My argument has been that actually Trump is representing something that's ideologically coherent that conservatives have neglected to think through and that what we're seeing now is more a manifestation of that undercurrent of how conservatism has evolved in America. What what is that thing? Define Trumpism for me. What Trump has really articulated is very consistent with what we think of in Europe as nationalism, right? The idea that foreigners are something to be very skeptical of, not just in terms of immigration, where where his positions are talked about a lot, but economically as well. I mean, immigration, of course, is economic. It's competition from foreigners for labor. There's also, of course, competition from foreigners for trade, for uh, other uh, goods and products and services. And there's also just the idea of we shouldn't really be focused so much on trying to make the world a better place. We should focus on making America better, America first. That's a philosophy, a political philosophy that's been around for a very long time. And it's a very natural part of politics in most democratic countries. It's actually something of a historical accident that it hasn't been part of politics so much in America in terms of having a specific party being the nationalist party. But this is a way in which what it seems to me happened in 2016 for a lot of people was that Donald Trump forced you to choose. If you were being intellectually honest about what was on offer, he forced you to choose between being a traditionally what we would think of as a conservative and a Republican. And something that's been striking to me is a lot of the response to that has been either to deny the choice, which I think is usually taken the form of this, let's take Trump seriously, but not literally. When he actually gets into office, we'll just convince him of everything we believe and he'll do what we want, which I think we're now a little while into the Trump administration. That is not proving true. But the other one is that I think a lot of people have said, well, you know, I'm a Republican. I'll go where Republicanism goes. And as I understand where you've moved a bit, you're still a conservative, but this has forced a fissure or created a fissure for you with your Republican identity. To your point about uh, has this made conservatives choose, I think a lot of conservatives would make the argument that they made the choice that made sense to them. For example, if you really care about the Supreme Court and, and the Supreme Court adhering to a certain constitutional philosophy, the likelihood of Trump appointing a Supreme Court justice that you care about is much higher than Hillary Clinton appointing a Supreme Court justice that you care about. On other issues of domestic policy, while you might not agree on everything Trump does, you might agree, for example, with his a view on tax reform. And so the argument was, well, we may not get everything we want from Trump, but we'll get a lot more from a Trump presidency than we would from a Hillary presidency. So that I think conservatives would make the argument it was the the, the better of the two mm-hmm. choices. I think for myself, the challenge is I've taken a, perhaps a more long-term view of conservatism. My thought has been that the big challenge for cons- American conservatism 
is to apply its principles more broadly and not see them as inherently wedded to Europeans and Christians or people of European ancestry and Christians. And I think that to the degree that that is either explicitly or implicitly part of American conservatism, it's not going to work in the future and it really shouldn't work. In a country that aspires to be a country for everyone, we, we talk about the American creed or the idea being that people can come here from anywhere. We're not about a particular ethnic tribe. If that's the case, then then conservatism needs to embrace that and really think hard about what it means to be a conservative in a pluralistic country. That's the issue that I've, I've been concerned that the nationalist movement in America hasn't really taken as much into account. There's a lot I want to pick up on in there. But one piece of it is how much do you think that your view on this is influenced by your own identity? You're not a white man. And I have found this among a lot of people I've spoken to about Trump, including a lot of people on the right, that which parts of his message you're willing to hear more loudly and hear more softly mm -hmm. has a lot to do with where you come from. There are a lot of folks who say, yeah, I don't like what he's saying. I don't like the more bigoted dimensions of his message. But what I'm going to hear loudly is tax reform or what I'm going to hear loudly is he's going to point a pro-life Supreme Court justice. Whereas a lot of folks of color who I know, they are not able to turn the volume down on the more nationalist, more I would call it racially traditionalist mm -hmm. dimensions of his message. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, when I was growing up in, in Michigan, I lived in a very integrated neighborhood where there were blacks, Hispanics, Asians. We all got along. We never thought about race. The first time I really was forced to look at someone and be like, oh, that's a Hispanic or that's an Asian or that's a black person was my first week in college when it was drilled down to us that uh, this is the way we had to, to think about people. So I had a, perhaps a naive upbringing in which I think one of the things that made me a conservative over time is I just thought the obsession, the discussion of race in certain corners was was way exaggerated from my own experience living in a place where I didn't really feel like I'd encountered a lot of prejudice and where people seemed to get along and mix freely. But I, as time went on, my views evolved. First, I think the experience of 9-11 happened where – and I wrote a piece for this uh, for National Review in response to the Boston Marathon bombings where I talked about how right after 9-11, I had a lot of strange experiences where I would get stopped by security from – in places where I would never get stopped by security before. And, you know, I'm a I'm an Indian American, a descendant of Indian immigrants whose parents were persecuted by Muslims and who came to this country because of the partition of what was then East Pakistan and India. They have no naivete about radical Islam. And in fact, there are a lot of Indians who support Trump for that reason, because they feel like he understands Islam in the ways that they do. But that experience for me helped me understand the black experience in America, in which in a way I'd never had before. When blacks would say, you know, there's this subtle prejudice, the way people look at you, the way people – I'd be like, come on. I would be like, that's that's hypersensitivity. You know, that's – that's are you really – is it really racism or are you overreacting to something? And perhaps there are times when people are overreacting, but I think I underappreciated the degree to which – African-Americans go through life and encounter prejudice in a way that the rest of us who are just never experienced that prejudice never understand. I think part of the thing about the conservatives or Republicans that are uh, enthusiastic about Trump in ways that you're describing is I think that if they've never experienced prejudice in the way that others have, you just don't understand why it is that the forces uh, that this past election have unleashed can be so troubling for some. And I think that gap in our empathy and our understanding is the great challenge here. You had this good line a couple of minutes ago where you explained 
the choice I think many conservatives made and made, and I really want to emphasize this rationally around Trump, which is that he was for them the lesser of two evils, that he did have a much better chance of signing into law the Paul Ryan tax reform or nominating a pro-life justice. I always thought the idea that it was irrational or somehow inexplicable for Republicans to vote for Trump, it, it never made any sense to me. That's it. What I do think is interesting about politics, and this isn't just here, it's a broader phenomenon, is that when people align they align totally. So you're, you're seeing this right now in the relationship between Trump and Republicans in, in Congress for the most part, with a couple of exceptions like John McCain on Russia. But you could certainly imagine the stance of Republicans towards this president who is nominally a Republican but wasn't even really a member of their party until a couple of years ago would be when you're with us, we're with you. And when you're not, we're not. Right? There's no reason you have to follow all of this down the line. No reason you have to turn away from the conflict of interest stuff. No reason you have to be so silent. And we are speaking, I should just say, because I'm sure this will come out later, but we are speaking the Monday after Trump signed the executive order on refugees and immigrants. As of the time we're speaking, about 250 some House Republicans have not said anything about the ban. Uh, or I'm sorry, not House Republicans, congressional Republicans. So what is surprising to me is how much folks like Ryan felt they have to align totally as opposed to, you know, actually using their pressure on him to force him into being more of a conservative than his intuitions make him be. Instead, he's using their hope that he'll later do tax reform to give him cover on things he just wants to do anyway. Yeah, you know, uh, political parties and at times the media institutions and other aspects of, of politics that are related to political parties, there is this kind of Crips versus Bloods, Red versus Blue, Patriots versus the Giants kind of tribalism that lead people to want to defend their side and attack the other side. And to a degree in the post-election or post-inauguration timeframe, this is encouraged by what I think a lot of anti-Trump conservatives have seen as an overreaction by the left. You know, you see this at National Review, some of the commentary on the refugee decisions that you've talked about has said, well, yes, you know, Trump's uh, decision was clumsy. There were things he did wrong. However, the idea that we don't have a right to decide who gets into America is also extreme and, and, and we should criticize that too. So you're seeing a lot of people say, you know what, we're going to criticize the left or do that more. And I understand that on some level, and I think that it's important to be intellectually fair. But I, I do hope that conservatives do make a point of taking a stand when it comes to the importance of conservatism being a value system that is independent of race, ethnicity, and religion. Here's the key point, Ezra. There are a lot of conservatives who don't believe that. There are a lot of conservatives in America that are sometimes associated with what's called the paleoconservative faction who actually explicitly believe that American conservatism can't be separated from Christian teaching, from the European inheritance. And if you believe that, and I think a lot of conservatives do, not all, but there are important conservative intellectuals who do believe that and a lot of conservative voters who believe that, then we're at an impasse. Tell me a bit about the conservatism you are working for, working towards, the conservatism you imagine. If I don't want to put this in the vessel of Rick Perry because he's a person and has his own ideas, but what would you have hoped a Republican president in 2016's agenda and platform and priorities would have looked like? 
Yeah. So uh, after Governor Perry dropped out of the presidential campaign, I worked for Marco Rubio, another candidate who I think embraced the idea that what makes America great is the fact that it has been this this beacon for so many people from all over the world who want what America has to offer in terms of a way of life and a, a, a polity. The people I've tried to work for in, in politics have been people who, who shared that idea that there needs to be a conservatism of for everyone. Eight years ago, we started talking about reformicons. Maybe this is the diversicons. You know, maybe this is, a, you know, we'll have to coin a new faction. Conservatives, we, we like to have factions with intellectual strains to them. Maybe that's what this is. It's, it's a, a movement that I think emphasizes younger conservatives who've grown up in a more diverse America and therefore don't find it distressing in any way, don't see it as somehow hostile to the American idea, but who actually go beyond that and affirmatively want to say, look, conservative values are values that anyone can embrace if they want to. They're not inherent to uh, being white or being European or being Christian. So one, I really like the coinage of diversicons. <laughs> I, I can see that on a Twitter hashtag trending all over the world. <laughs> That's going to be your fault if it happens. Uh, one can only hope. But you had a great line in a speech you you gave, and, and the speech in some ways, I think, was almost towards a diversicon conservatism. It was about how do you create a cultural conservatism for a multicultural age? And you had this very... I found affecting and, and provocative line where he said, the problem with conservatism is that we no longer agree on the answer to that classic Russell Kirk question, which is what is it that we seek to conserve? Right. What is your answer to that question? What is it that you seek to conserve? Right. So this is something that if you actually look back at American history is one of the reasons why our politics is unique, that if you want to be a conservative in America, let's dial it back. If you want to be a conservative in Denmark, that means conserving what's traditional about Denmark, which goes back thousands of years to the original Vikings who settled there, right? When you talk about conserving what's American, yes, you can theoretically think of it in some sort of ethnographic way, but that's not what most people say. When most people are asked the question, what is it that the American tradition is? What defines the American tradition? They're talking about the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. That troika is as much a tradition of liberalism as a tradition of conservatism in the classical sense of the term that we would use in the old world. And so that's one of the reasons why conservatism in America has always been this amalgam of classical conservatism, of skepticism, of revolution and radical change, but also an embrace of certain classical liberal concepts like individual liberty, limited government, et cetera. Those concepts are in conflict all the time. And conservatism has always had to try to figure out a way to synthesize those. And if we draw back from that, what is it that we seek to conserve? Well, again, I go back to what I said earlier that the quintessential American idea is that people can come here from anywhere and if they work hard and play by the rules, they're welcomed as American. I'm an American. I owe Roy an American because I was born here and I'm a citizen of the United States, not because of where I'm from. You, you often hear conservatives say, I don't want to be a hyphenated America. Bobby Jindal would say, I don't call me an Indian American. I'm just an American. And that speaks to that idea that America is something that we can all fully embrace in a way that, say, for example, Carolyn Wozniacki, a famous Danish tennis star, her family's from Poland, but she's Danish. She's a Danish citizen. She, she wears a Danish flag when she plays tennis. And in the Danish press, she will be referred to sometimes as Polish 
right? Even though she's actually Danish. In America, we very much have the sense that we're Americans. And that idea, I think, is the thing that above all else we need to conserve. But what does that idea translate into? That is a deep and it's, a, I think, a beautiful value. But in terms of what politics does, in terms of the questions that it manages, the allocation of resources, what kinds of defense we do, the application of regulations. I see that as a response to Trumpism, but not so much as a clear philosophy of governance. So help me understand a bit what that would lead to in terms of the prioritizations you would make. You know, if you were the director of the Domestic Policy Council for <laughs> President such and such, for President Diversicon. How would you translate this to, to policy? Well, I mean, I, I think- Or even just to priorities. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is really not so much about economic policy per se. I mean, it is a little bit, and we can get into some of that, particularly when we talk about things like healthcare. There's a degree to which our politics are driven by not so much one party being against welfare and one party being for welfare, but each party being for welfare for its constituencies. So the thing that former President Obama used to, to like to do to make fun of the Tea Partiers who would say, get your government hands off my Medicare, I think we all understand that if you've spent time with, with people who've said that, you understand that they don't see that as welfare. Now, there are economic reasons for them not to see it as welfare because, and political reasons because politicians have never explained to them that a lot of it is actually welfare and it's not merely an earned benefit that's taken out of your, your paycheck every other week. But there is a degree to which the nationalist sentiment uh, is not so much it's, – it's about it's OK for there to be a welfare state for me. It just can't be for them, however you define them. And there is a degree to which that's legitimate. I think there's a pan-ethnic patriotism or nationalism in which we have a safety net for people who are American citizens but don't open that up to everybody. But there is a degree to which politics can be a, a set of voters who are competing for the statism that benefits them. And what a classical liberal would say is like, look, we're going to have a system where if you work hard, you play by the rules, you're going to do well. We're going to have a safety net to protect the vulnerable and those who can't help themselves. But broadly speaking, we're going to move to a system where everybody is treated equally regardless of a race or ethnicity or religion. So that's the economic policy side of it. But I think it's politics is much more than just economics. And this goes to something that I address in, in the speech of the Acton Institute that you were mentioning is that if you take Asian Americans, for example, and now Bobby Jindal will get mad at me for saying Asian Americans, but if you take Asian Americans, they're doing well, very well by all the standards we expect and want immigrants to do well in America, but they're voting incredibly and very dramatically for uh, candidates on the left and candidates associated with the Democratic Party. It's not because they haven't embraced the American idea. It's because, and it's not because economically they actually benefit from a robust safety net. They're not utilizing the robust safety net. But what they're saying is that we want to be part of a political party and we want to embrace politicians who recognize the dignity of us being Americans. And I think that's been a part of why Donald Trump has had the political success he's had, because there's a group of Americans whose dignity only he and, and his movement were recognizing. But that's also true of minorities who feel like their dignity is being embraced by Democrats and not by Republicans or by progressives and not by conservatives. So there's a fascinating debate that has taken place in Republican circles in the last couple of years, kicking into high gear after the 2012 election which was, is the future of the Republican Party, is the future of conservatism, which the Republican Party is a vessel for, is it expanding? 
its base to people like Asian Americans who had voted in very high numbers for Obama in 2012. Or there was also this other idea of the missing white voter, that the white base might be dwindling a bit, but it was still huge. And if they could turn out more white voters or shift white voters further into their camp, then that would also be a path, at least in the short term, back to power. And I would say something like Marco Rubio was really trying to follow the first Diversicon approach. And on the other hand, Donald Trump then took the missing white voter approach, which I think people believed wasn't going to work. And it's true he lost a popular vote by about 3 million votes. So on one level, maybe it didn't work. But it turned out that white voters are pretty efficiently distributed from the perspective of the Electoral College. And also, if you appeal to them much more directly as a class, you can get them, particularly non-college-educated whites, to vote much more like a minority group, to vote in very overwhelming numbers for the candidate that is speaking to them as an interest group. And one thing I'm curious to know how you handicap is Trump's success with that. And also the difficulty he showed that a Republican will have moving the party in a more diverse direction because a lot of these voters don't want that seems to suggest to me that the party is really now locked into that strategy and its future is in trying to run up the numbers among a dwindling percentage of the population. Yeah, so here, Ezra, we have to give a shout out to Sean Trendy, who yeah. who, who wrote this yep, analysis was right the, after uh, mm-hmm. the November 2012 elections, and got a lot of flack for it. Even when he was saying, "Like, look, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying analytically, these voters are there." Right, uh, and he's, I think, been vindicated in his analysis. I tend to look at it less politically and more morally because I think that if you try to make the argument, and this goes to your point, if you make the argument to downscale white voters. If you're a Republican consultant who puts up a PowerPoint showing these charts of the demographics and says, you need to vote against your interests and vote for a a more diverse party or a more diverse-oriented agenda because that way people like me can have power, why is somebody who feels like the deck is stacked against them going to support that? You're basically asking that individual or that community to vote in ways that are against their interests to put people in power who don't want to advance their interests, right? So you can see why that formula doesn't work. So a big part of what I've tried to, to articulate is there really needs to be a moral case for why conservatives need to embrace diversity. It can't be a political case. If it's a political case, it won't win and it won't deserve to win. At the end of the day, all politics, all good politics is about making a moral argument. And conservatives, in my view, need to address the moral problem of being a party that doesn't represent the fabric of America and isn't about the fabric of America. Of course, if you talk to any conservative, say, well, that's not true. We, we support diversity. It's just that what you'll hear people say is the left uh, plays more identity politics than we do. They'll cater to that group and pander to that, that group, whether it's Asians or blacks or Hispanics, more aggressively than we will. We won't do that because we don't believe in identity politics. I think that's wrong on two fronts. One, I think conservatives very much embrace identity politics when it comes to veterans, evangelicals, downscale whites, et cetera, just not minorities. And secondly, I'd say that there is actually a degree to which conservatives do the kind of the opposite of identity politics, which is to make stereotypes that don't make sense. So if the argument is going to be, and this goes back to what we're talking about with the the Acton Institute speech, if the argument is going to be, well, there's no point in reaching out to African-Americans to vote conservative because they're all poor and they're all on welfare and they're just going to vote for more free stuff. 
Well, that's wrong on every front. <laughs> not, not all African-Americans are poor. Even the ones who are don't necessarily advocate for more free stuff. And by the way, aren't you supposed to be the guy who treats people like individuals and doesn't care about their race or their ethnicity? So there's this challenge, I think, to trying to get people to say, look, we are going to go and appeal to every American. And it's our, not only politically good for us to do that, it is our obligation as Americans. If we want to be a, a party and a movement that has a legitimate claim to govern this entire country, then we've got to go to every corner of the country and and try to listen to the concerns of and try to have an agenda that responds to the concerns of everyone. Here's the prior of mine that got shredded among the many priors of mine that got shredded in the 2016 election. I thought that the Republican Party more or less would be able to make this shift towards a more diverse structure and institution. And it wouldn't be easy. I mean, I watched the immigration bill go down in flames, but I could have imagined a world where it was not a Democratic president and something got passed that was not the immigration bill that the Senate came up with in whatever it was, 2013, but was a little bit more conservative in its nature. But what I saw in 2016 was that the Republican Party has an elite that is, I think, not very far from where you're talking about. Many of them, at least, very much would buy a lot of the arguments you're making here. But it has a base that is more opposed to that than I had thought, that is going to punish someone, is going to punish anyone who moves in that direction. And you saw it a little bit in the 2012 election when I think it was Rick Perry who got in trouble for saying that I think it was Mitt Romney's view on immigration was heartless. Right. Uh, there was actually Mitt Romney. There was a debate in South Carolina where Mitt Romney had attacked uh, Rick Perry for signing a bill granting in-state tuition to the children of illegal immigrants or illegal immigrants uh, who were children. And Perry explained that this was something that passed unanimously and that if you didn't support this bill, you you had no heart. And the crowd booed. And Perry went from leading the, the Republican primary, was first in the polls, overnight to fifth. And people think about this oops moment, mm -hmm. but it was actually the immigration moment that sunk his campaign. The oops moment actually came a few weeks or a few months afterwards. And that was the moment for me that I think uh, drove home how much immigration was central to the, the Republican base in a way that, say, Romneycare versus Obamacare mm -hmm. was not. Like you would hear a lot of people say, well, why should we support Mitt Romney when he created Obamacare? Well, Republican voters clearly weren't that concerned about that versus immigration. So what I think that Donald Trump showed in 2016 showed was that this strategic choice, this moral choice about what kind of party to be doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens with a lot of voters who the party currently depends on, voters who clearly dominate in primaries, who have a very distinct view about what kind of party to have. And you know, in the business world, you hear this kind of thing all the time, right? You, you can move it into this much less provocative language. It's the kind of innovator's dilemma thing. You have a customer base that wants one thing, moving to another thing abandons that customer base. And so even if you know your future is over here, there's no real way that a, that a manager acting rationally cannot abandon the customers who are funding the current cost structure. And that really seems to me to be the problem in the Republican Party right now. The intellectual argument that you're laying out here in many ways seem to have been won. 
If you were just looking at the party from 2012 to maybe 2015, you would see it mostly moving in that direction among people like Paul Ryan, who's doing a very high-profile minority outreach tour, You know, among people like Marco Rubio, who is based in his campaign here. Jeb Bush was looking strong in the Republican primary, raised $100 million for a super PACs and similarly you know, had a very open attitude towards immigration. And then Donald Trump came and said, you know what? Turns out your customers are actually here and right. I'm the only one selling to them. And so, you yeah. know, I'm dominant. It's so interesting that you bring up the innovator's dilemma. Clayton Christensen, the HBS, a Harvard Business School a professor who articulated this idea, because that's exactly how I've thought about, about the Republican Party and the conservative movement is that it's a lot like GM having this incumbent or, or there have been a lot of companies like this. IBM was like this. Merrill Lynch was like this when it had this army, 10,000, 15,000 stockbrokers at the time when E-Trade and Ameritrade were blowing up that model. And they couldn't fire the stockbrokers because what CEO wants to do that? It's not like they were dumb. They understood that this was happening. But the political cost of firing 15,000 stockbrokers was too high for them to adapt to the world of $8.99 trades. That is, I think, exactly what the Republican Party is going through politically, is that the political costs in the short term of building a new coalition of more diverse conservatives is greater because of what you would lose in the short term than the rewards, which are more long term. And, and for someone like me who's not accountable to the voters, I perhaps have the luxury of thinking more about the long term and being, frankly, very concerned about, about the long term. So I, I think what's going to happen with the Republican Party is one of two things. Either the Republican Party is going to find a way through this innovator's dilemma. It's going to be taken over by Gen Xers and millennials who just have a different view and you're mm -hmm. just going to see a gradual evolution away from the baby boomer and approach uh, that we've seen uh, from, from older Republicans. Either that's going to happen or there's going to be a massive disruption where after Trump, the Republican Party uh, loses a lot of national elections and doesn't recover uh, except in a very different form. I want to talk about another divide in the Republican Party that you straddle in an interesting way or may not straddle that you're on one side of but but can detail in an interesting way, which is over health care. Sure. The parties united on the idea that Obamacare is bad, that it should be repealed and for the most part that it should be replaced with something. But it seems to me, and I'd love for you to correct this perception to the degree it's wrong. It seems to me you then have roughly three camps of Republicans. One camp, and I think you're part of this camp, believes basically in the goals of having a healthcare system with a some level of government involvement that covers something close to everybody, but wants to do it in a more consumer-driven, free market, et cetera, way than Obamacare does. That's one camp. Then there's a camp that just genuinely does not have those goals does not think the government should be that involved in healthcare, does not think it is the government's responsibility to make sure everybody has health insurance, and would like to see Obamacare gone and doesn't necessarily want to see chaos in insurance markets, but doesn't really want to replace it with something that is doing the same set of things. They're very committed to the idea the government should just be smaller. Sure. And the government being involved in healthcare is antithetical to that. And then the third, I think, just doesn't care that much about healthcare. And I think there's actually a, an important group that people don't talk about that mm. much. But healthcare policy requires a lot of unpopular trade-offs, sacrifices, a lot of sacrifice, as the Democrats found out in 2010 when they got ripped apart in a midterm after passing a healthcare bill. Any Republican replacement will have to make a lot of hard decisions, have to mm -hmm. have some unpopular things you defend. And I think there are a lot of Republicans who, when it comes down to it, it's just not a passionate issue for them and they just somehow want to duck it. Yeah. Do you think that's basically a fair outline? 
I don't think it's unfair for sure. And, you know, what I would say, how I often characterize it when I'm giving healthcare talks out there in the country is think about it this way. Stereotypical Republican voter is either retired or employed. Well, we spend 700 plus billion dollars a year subsidizing retired healthcare for retired people. And we spend about $500 billion a year through the tax code subsidizing health insurance for employed people. So it's not surprising that employed and retired people don't care that much about healthcare because for them, the healthcare system is great because we spend $1.2 trillion a year subsidizing it for them. And that's a big part of the constituency problem in healthcare. And I think one of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed about uh, learning from, from guys like you, Ezra, and Chris Hayes and others is the progressive movement is so much more sophisticated at understanding how change happens and how you have to actually bring constituencies along in a way that supports change. The conservative movement doesn't tend to think that way. The conservative movement tends to think ideologically. Well, the first principle is, to your point, government shouldn't be involved in healthcare or government should be involved less in healthcare. And the rest will sort of just kind of work itself out with the politics. And they're going to find uh, very soon uh, that that doesn't really work that way. And I think that's uh, that's going to be a big challenge for Republicans in, in how they try to reform the healthcare system. To your point about the second faction that says, no, there's really no role for the government in healthcare, there's a couple of points I'd make. The first is, well, if you really think there should be no role for the government in healthcare, then you shouldn't be passionate about repealing Obamacare but not repealing Medicare and Medicaid. Those are far bigger, fiscally far bigger problems. But the rhetoric on the right would make you think that Obamacare, there was a free market healthcare system before Obamacare, and Obamacare was the government takeover of the healthcare system. You hear prominent Republican politicians and conservative pundits say Obamacare was the government takeover of the health. The government takeover of the healthcare system happened in 1965. It didn't happen in 2010. And I think actually there are a lot of conservatives who genuinely don't understand that because the people who they rely on for that information haven't been delivering it to them. So one of the things that I've argued in in my health reform work and, and proposals has been you can actually try to solve all these problems at the same time. You can actually make government smaller and cover more people because the problem is not that we don't spend enough money. If you actually look at it on a per capita basis, public or government spending in the United States on uh, subsidizing health insurance is greater and was greater before Obamacare than all but two other countries in the world. I think it was Norway and Luxembourg. I, I love this stat. Can I stop you on yeah. it for one second? Because what you are saying here, I think it blows people's minds. Blows my mind. The government in America spends more on healthcare than the government in countries that have single payer systems that cover everybody. Right. Absolutely. And so the point I try to make when I speak to both to, to liberal and conservative audiences, look, you don't need more government spending, more government intervention to achieve health insurance for everyone. You have to take the, the resources we already allocate and allocate them in a way that actually is more responsive to the needs of vulnerable populations. So, but here's where I think there is something – I think this is a problem that Democrats have recently run into. I think it's what is causing a lot of consternation around Obamacare and I think it's an even bigger problem in, in some way for Republicans. The only people it's not a problem for are single-payer people. And th it's this. Americans have been habituated by our healthcare system, by Medicare, by Medicaid, by the employer-based system, such that what they want is generous, comprehensive health insurance paid for primarily by someone else. And a lot of the plans that are out there right now, I think this is true for the Republican plans, it's true for Obamacare to some degree, once you get above the very high levels of subsidies for, for people near poverty or below poverty, 
it's making more of the cost of generous insurance visible. And it's really expensive and people don't want to pay it. And I'm curious how you're thinking about that because embedded in what you were saying about spending the money differently is you know moving more towards catastrophic insurance, moving more towards having health savings accounts. But what people want is what they think they're getting in Medicare, what they think they're getting in, in employer care, which is somebody else paying for insurance where you really don't have to think about cost anymore. Well, I, I would frame it a little bit differently. I would say that what people really want is they want that basic protection that comes from knowing you're not going to be bankrupt if you get sick, if you have cancer, you get hit by a bus. They want that basic protection and they want the remaining health care expenditures to be affordable, whatever form that comes in. Um, so yes, of course, if someone is going to massively subsidize their comprehensive health insurance plan, I, I don't think people will object. But I don't necessarily believe that that's an inherent demand that voters have. You must pay for all of my health care in every single way, otherwise I will get mad. I think people would be pretty comfortable with a system in which their premiums were much lower and the cost of their out-of-pocket expenditures was also much lower because we had a more affordable health system all the way around. And that's what conservatives – and actually, that's what all polls say. If you look at polls and you say, what's the biggest concern of Americans when it comes to health care? Something like 91 percent say cost and covering the uninsured is actually way down the list because, of course, most people actually have mm -hmm. health insurance and, and so cost is, is very important to them. But even the people who are uninsured, cost is important. Why are they uninsured? It's because the cost of health insurance or the price of health insurance exceeds – either their ability to pay or their view of its value relative to what they're getting for it. So a lot of what we have to do is reduce costs. And I think most people agree left and right that the ACA was not designed inherently. I mean, I know there, you know, Peter Orzek would hear you were here, he'd fight with me on this. But most people would say the ACA was not driven by cost control. It was driven by coverage expansion. And the cost control, the idea was that once you got everyone under the tent, you would spend a lot more effort in health reform 2.0 on cost control. And that's not to say that there aren't things in the ACA that strive to achieve some reforms in this area. And I think there are some things the ACA is doing that, that might be encouraging in that regard. Broadly speaking, that wasn't the mission, right? And I don't think that's the mission, frankly, of what Republicans are proposing either. I think that it is to a, perhaps a derivative effect. But if you really want to attack costs in the healthcare system, the only way you're going to do that is by allowing consumers to have more control over the healthcare dollars that are spent on their behalf so they can direct that money to the people who are delivering healthcare services to them at a lower price. And that means moving to a system where more people are buying insurance for themselves and thereby freely choosing. If you're right, Ezra, and they really want comprehensive health insurance, they'll buy that. But if they really want catastrophic insurance, well, they'll buy that. Free, I, I do want to note, freely choosing there does imply that you have the money to freely choose it, right? And I think for a lot of people, to them, the problem is they can't. Sure, which is why we should, we should subsidize it for people who can't afford it. I want to dig in on, on something you said here, because I think there's a really interesting distinction to be made. There is the idea of cost control in healthcare, and then right. I think there's also this idea of spending control. And we don't really talk about it that way. We don't separate these out at all. But I think what Washington has been doing for a while, because it tends to work off of the insurance side of the ledger, is spending control. We give you a higher deductible, and it's harder for you to spend as much money on healthcare. So, you know, in I think the good version of that, you make smarter decisions as a healthcare consumer. And in the bad version of that, you just don't get care that you need. Or similarly, there's a lot of in the excise tax in Obamacare, the tax that is coming into effect in theory in 2018. 
on expensive health insurance. Cadillac tax. Cadillac tax is a way of doing spending control. We are trying to disincentivize employers from spending so much on generous insurance. Then there's cost control. So you've written this pamphlet, which is excellent, which lays out your plan called Transcending Obamacare. And I think people should look it up. It's very much worth reading. And at the beginning of it, you talk about what you've learned from the really high-performing international systems, which are Switzerland and, and Singapore, in your view. And what I thought reading that was that something was being elided there a little bit and is often elided in these conversations, which is what every other country does to control cost is price controls. They make things cheaper by just having the government set the prices for them. And that has downsides, certainly might if America went that way too. But it is the way that all these other places end up making this cheaper. And so when you say the only way to bring down costs is for consumers to have more control over their dollars, I would suggest I don't know that that does bring down cost. It brings down spending. But I think what people want is for the actual cost of an MRI to be cheaper. And the way that everybody else seems to do that and seems to be able to pay a lot less than we do is to do these price controls, which were not part of Obamacare either and are not part of any of the plausible alternatives to it, but seem to be the thing internationally that have worked. Yeah. So I would actually flip that around. So if you look at Singapore, Singapore does have certain types of regulated prices. But Singapore spends one-seventh on health care as a share of GDP as the United States does. They spend about a quarter to a third, depending on what measurements you use, to what European countries spend. It's not because they have three times or seven times the price controls. It's because they've put in this consumer-driven system where individuals have an incentive to consume health care rationally. Similarly with Switzerland, Switzerland doesn't exactly have price controls. What they have is the insurers in a particular canton, which is kind of like a state in Switzerland, the insurers in that canton can jointly negotiate reimbursement rates for to, to hospitals and drug companies and doctors in ways that to the government allows. The government doesn't attack that as anti from an antitrust standpoint. Maryland does something similar in the U.S. for yeah. hospital costs. So uh, that's not exactly price controls. In the, I think of price controls as the government is writing down, here's what the price of X is. Those are other approaches. So what Singapore does is says, if you want to use your health savings account to purchase an MRI scan, say, here's what if the MRI provider wants to, to tap into your HS say to do that, here's the price they need to charge, which is more like an administered price. But again, it's something where you can shop. You can go to different places and say, you know what, these people are charging more or less. Here's what, it's more like reference pricing where there's an asset amount that you can take out of your HSA to spend, but the providers of the service are actually allowed to charge more or less. And if you want to pay more, you can. So there are different approaches to this, not just about regulating prices. I do agree that in a single payer model, you do have to re regulate price. And I think this is where conservatives and Republicans I think make a certain – I don't know if mistake is the word, but with Medicare, we have the worst of both worlds. We have effectively a quasi-single-payer healthcare system for the elderly and the disabled, but we don't regulate prices in that system. And so what do you have? You have crony capitalism. You have hospitals and doctors and drug companies that, that make drugs particularly for the Medicare market. They can charge whatever they want and the taxpayer has no say in what those prices really ought to be or not the kind of say that perhaps they should. We would never say to the Defense Department that they should, they should not be able to negotiate 
negotiate with Boeing what the price of an aircraft is, right? So and you're speaking specifically here on drugs. I'm speaking about everything. Well, because I mean, Medicare, Medicare yes. pays small, there are, lower there are, per unit prices. There are administered prices for yeah. yes for uh, for healthcare services. But I mean more broadly, if you think about IPAB and the conservative hostility to IPAB, mm-hmm. which is a, a new board that the ACA created, the Obamacare created, that would uh, try to uh, regulate access and, and price to some degree implicitly in Medicare. Conservatives have found that really terrible. And, and, and I always looked at it like, if you're going to have single payer health care, it's not surprising that the government would try to control costs. I look at it the other way, which is as a free marketeer, what I want is I want individuals to make choices and individuals to control costs. And they do that in the rest of the economy by taking their business to Best Buy versus Amazon.com if they think that whichever is going to have the best price for the things that they're buying. And we can do that in healthcare. I think what a lot of people have argued, particularly on the left, is that the laws of economics are somehow magically suspended when we talk about healthcare. When in fact economics is is not magically suspended in anything. It's 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 like the law of gravity. It just it works. And yes, it works maybe differently in healthcare than it works elsewhere. But people assign certain values to certain goods and services. And if you decide to uh, to take out the agency of individuals in in directing their dollars to the things they want and need, then it shouldn't be surprising that the price is going to be high, the value is going to be poor, and the quality is going. I want to unpack this debate a little bit because sure. I think we shorthanded part of it there. Sure. So what Ovik is referencing when he says that folks sometimes think the, that economics are suspended here is that there's an idea, and I think it's one that I hold as well, that it's a lot harder for consumers to act like consumers around healthcare services. Now, the place people usually talk about this, and I think it's the strongest version of that argument, is you've had a heart attack. You've been taken out of your apartment on a gurney. You're in no condition to do some comparison shopping. But it's also true that a lot of healthcare does not have that at the point of trauma dimension to it. You're dealing with prescription drugs that you actually do have time to figure out where you buy them from. You're dealing with diagnostic scans and you can go from one place to another. The thing that I think is tricky about healthcare, and the the reason I'm more of a believer, I think, in this argument than you are, Mm -hmm. is a couple things. One is that healthcare does happen amidst periods of real panic for people. Even when those periods are more expanded than you've just had a stroke and can't talk, they happen at a time when families are very afraid, when people are very afraid, and they are all of a sudden facing a situation they don't really know how to deal with. And they can look at WebMD and whatever, but it's still hard. People treat, and I've seen this a lot, they treat doctors as demigods. Just whatever the doctor says, they are going to do. Mm-hmm. And the quality that I think healthcare has, and this is where I think it does end up foiling some supply and demand dimensions, is healthcare is one of the very few services and or goods and services in, in the economy where it is so important to us that on some moral level, we are not willing to just say to people no. Now, we obviously do it implicitly in different ways, but a hospital to a large degree has to treat you if you just walk in the door. We have laws. Because we have laws, yes. Yeah, dating back to Ronald Reagan. But those laws came about for a reason. Mm -hmm. It came because societally we decided we're not going to just say no. We're not just going to let you die in the street. And I think one of the places where pressure really builds in the system, and I'd be curious how you think about this, is that when we make people say no too often, when we create the sort of supply and demand constraints that we have on televisions or we have on fancy meals or we have on yoga studios or we have on home goods like dishwashers, people don't just sort of like give up and go back. 
they begin complaining, they begin organizing, they begin getting angry at insurers. And so then the system tries to respond. And so it, it never responds fully, but it responds enough that I think you don't get some of the effects that you're hoping for there. Yeah. So I'd say a bunch of things about this. First, you know, you, you mentioned the point about if you're unconscious on a gurney, you're not shopping for healthcare. Absolutely right. But before you have that heart attack, you can, in theory, shop for a health insurance plan that you buy that you have confidence will add an affordable premium take you to the right hospital and send you to the doctors that you're comfortable having treat you should you have a heart attack in the future. So even when it comes to being unconscious because of a heart attack, there is an ability to make an economic decision if you so choose to make one. And to the point about treating doctors like demigods and having this deference to what doctors say and being in that moment of panic, yes, all absolutely important aspects of, of the humanity of healthcare that we need to address. One thing I should mention is that Technology is going to dramatically change this in the future. The Watson project at IBM, the supercomputing project, is one of many that's striving to process in real time. If you have a certain type of patient with a certain profile and a certain history, what does all the medical evidence and literature suggest is the most probably appropriate course of action? We're going to get to a point where the traditional role of doctors in making those decisions is going to be affected in ways that doctors don't like because they have a, a very high opinion of their own abilities by artificial intelligence and computing and big data to actually provide both physicians and patients with a guide to exactly how uh, they, they should their, their care should be managed. So I, I'm not convinced that in the future we'll be treating doctors as demigods in the way that we do today. Yes, there's panic and yes, there's a, uh, there's a deference to, to what doctors do and, and often that means things expensive that aren't actually in the interest of the patient economically or clinically are done to that patient. And that's a problem that there's only a couple of ways to solve. There's basically, if we think about it from a polarity standpoint, you could have the government make those decisions, say there's going to be a bunch of experts in Washington who have figured this all out and have, have decided what the rational approach is. That's one way. Another approach is to give individuals the choice and say, you know what, to your point about insurers saying no. Well, if you make the government the agency that says no, is that really any better to make all those decisions very political rather than from an insurance company? I don't, I don't think it's that much better. I think in many ways it can be worse. I think the best approach is to have the patient, the individual, his family say, you know what, my grandfather is 85. He wrote a living will. He decided that he didn't want to be on that incredibly expensive drug that's going to extend his life by maybe two weeks and just drain his savings and his inheritance. Now, if it really is a cure or it's a drug that would extend his life, surely that's something that we should take into account. We should subsidize it for people who can't afford it, et cetera. But we need to introduce more economic thinking rather than less into healthcare if we want healthcare to be affordable for more people. But one of the places I find this to, to collide, and, and it's colliding in Obamacare too, and in a way I think this is a problem that the technocratic left or the technocratic center left maybe and the writer are beginning to share, which is the mechanism by which these messages are, are put forward are price signals. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, what we're saying sometimes is that you just can't have this. And that's where the point about doctor is. And I, I, don't, I, I don't think it would matter actually if you're a doctor or Watson. If Watson says you need this, it's going to be even worse, right? Well, the fucking... Supercomputer said I need it. Who are you to tell me I can't afford it? What, what kind of country do we live in? I've always been really fascinated by the research showing that in the 90s, when we were very effective through the HMO revolution at keeping down healthcare costs, there's no evidence that people got sicker from that. But folks freaked out and 
basically revolted against insurers so aggressively for all the times that they their doctor was being told no on something the doctor said they needed that the caps on the system, the, the pressures on the system were released. And so one of the things that I am interested in is that I think in a stylized way, what other countries are trying to do, the way they're trying to solve this problem is to say, we're not going to be that good at saying no. We will have to do it sometimes. And particularly England does a lot of saying no, the UK through its nice system. But we are going to try to negotiate down prices of everything so much that we don't have to say no that often. And if we do, it'll be the government that has the power to just say like, no, it has to be cheaper or you don't get to sell here at all. And so then we have to make fewer of these choices wherein what we're talking about, and it's by the way, it's true even outside of, it's true in the status quo too. We are trying to send this through the price signal and the price signal is not, this is bad. The price signal is you can't afford this and you can't have it. And it's not always clear that where that comes about is a place of quality differentiation. The price signal often, if you think about TVs, it's telling you you can't have as nice a TV as you want, right? It's not saying the nice TV is worse for you. And in healthcare, oftentimes what the price signal is doing is saying, this might be good, but it's for richer people than you. And that's a place where I think we have shown ourselves as a society to be uncomfortable with that message. That's, that's I think what, what you're describing accepts the high prices we have in our system is somehow fundamental in a way that I don't. I mean, I'll give you an example from California that, that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is the California Public Employee Retire, uh, Retirement System, CalPERS, the, uh, the pension system for uh, public employees in California. They did an experiment where for knee replacements, they said, okay, for all of you who are getting insurance through our, our system, if you need to get your knee replaced, and, I, and don't quote me on the numbers because you may remember them more precisely than I do, but I think they said something like, we're going to give you, let's say, 9000 bucks. You can go to any hospital you want in California, but we're going to pay for 9000 bucks of the knee replacement. And whatever it is above that, if it is more than that, you'll have to pay the rest. And they picked that price because it was a price, I believe, that uh, something like 60% of the hospitals would replace your knee for, but not all of them. And they found something incredibly interesting and perhaps surprising. I think it was surprising to them that the hospitals that were charging $27,000 for the knee replacement, when they were faced with a CalPERS patient who said, you know, I've only got 9000 bucks to, to pay you, they magically said, you know what, I'll take you for 9000 bucks. That's no problem. No problem at all. It's totally fine. And what what can we do to get you in this knee replacement today? <laughs> exactly. Which shows you that a lot of hospitals, healthcare providers, and not just hospitals, are exploiting the non-market system to charge higher prices than they need to charge that they can affordably charge in terms of paying for their costs and things like that to serve the population. So I think we need more price signals, not less. And I think if we had a system where there was a, we allowed more innovation in insurance design, we could actually identify a lot of techniques like that. Now, that, what they did for knee replacements wouldn't work necessarily for every type of health care service. But where it can work, we should create room with policy to allow it to work. So I think I'm actually on the same page in that. But the, the place where I, I think I'm pessimistic about how much of an effect it will have on the system is here. So there are a lot of studies like that one. And the system is just so screwed up that almost anything you do <laughs> <Sure>. experimentally to, to get a better outcome of it works. And then, you know, sometimes I think to myself, well, employers have all of these incentives right now. And in fact, many of these neat experiments come from very large self-insured employers, right? There is a fascinating series of experiments Microsoft did a couple of years ago. I mean, different employers really do try to bring their healthcare costs down in different ways. And none of them really seem to be able to do it 
consistently, systematically, and it doesn't seem to spread to the others. When I've talked to experts about this, the explanation I've gotten is a couplefold. One is that what employers want above all is just for their employees not to yell at them. Mm-hmm. So first, anything that causes a lot of disruption, there are very few truly free lunches here. And so one, they just... they cannot absorb people yelling at them. And insurers to some degree also just don't want people to hate them and switch to another insurer. And then number two is that it's true that if you are very unusually the guy going into this hospital in California saying, hey, CalPERS is doing this weird thing. I've only got 9,000 bucks at the hospital. I might say, hey, OK, buddy, we, we, we can go into the back and make a deal. But what happened in the HMO period was that when you tried to do that system-wide for too long, the hospital's pushed back. They just began saying, sorry, your insurer isn't letting us do this for you. And when push came to shove, the ones who won were the hospitals because right. people like hospitals. They, I mean, they don't want to be there, but they trust hospitals, they trust right. doctors, they trust nurses, and they hate insurers and they don't like the government. Right. And so in the collision between the providers who do not want to keep costs down really and the various kinds of payers who do, the providers keep winning because right. ultimately if they say no, the public blames the payer, not them. I agree with your characterization and I would add to it, if you're the CEO or if you're the chief of benefits at a big corporation, your economic incentives are very much to not have your employees hate you because you might get fired. You might get driven out of town. You might lose a bonus. Why is that worth it to you to save money for the company in that way? It, it really isn't unless the, your board of directors makes it a priority. So there are a lot of political incentives that uh, that work against self-insured companies from saving as much money as we would like them to save. I want to draw this actually to a broader conversation that encompasses things that aren't just healthcare. And I think there is a, an ideological blind spot on the left when it comes to nonprofit institutions. The view, the assumption on the left is if you're a for-profit institution, you should be seen with skepticism. Your motives should be viewed with skepticism. And if you're a nonprofit institution, you get a free pass on your motives. And what we certainly see in healthcare, and not just in healthcare, Mm -hmm. I would say this is certainly true of higher education as well. We see incredibly exploitative practices on pricing by universities, by hospitals, and other large incumbent institutions that trade off the prestige of being nonprofit, knowing that people who think of nonprofit as kind of a halo will not give them a hard time. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think there's a growing uh, – the, the nonprofit sector is a growing share of our economy that's immune from taxation and immune in many ways from political accountability. And that's something I think that requires a larger political conversation to address. I actually think that's right. So one thing that has struck me as this discussion about repealing and replacing Obamacare has moved in its slow way towards the reality of repealing and replacing Obamacare is – the specific ways that Republicans have been attacking Obamacare, and, and, and this has continued since the election in a way that actually surprised me, seem very short-sighted for what they're going to have to do next. So I've seen not just Donald Trump, but Mitch McConnell get up on television and say the problem with Obamacare is that it has left 25 million people uninsured and the deductibles are too high. And I know a lot of these plans and in different – I do not know any of the Republican plans that would simultaneously lead to everybody being insured and significantly lower deductibles. A lot of the Republican plans believe in having you know, significant deductibles. And I'm curious how you think about this because it, it seems to me that Republicans have been opportunistically criticizing Obamacare for a number of years now. And yeah. what I mean by that is they do genuinely and sincerely oppose the law. 
But what they have chosen to do is pick up the criticisms of it that are popular criticisms as opposed to the ones that align with their policies best. And now they're about to get caught in the gap between those two things because their voters think they're going to fix what they don't like about Obamacare, which is high deductibles and narrow networks and high costs and all this other stuff. And you know, a lot of their plans, they're not there to do that. That's not really what Republicans who hate Obamacare's taxes and regulations are going to fix. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as you were as you were describing that, I was hearkening back to I think about four years ago when we were last time we had a recorded long conversation at the Washington Walk Post. Talk. Yeah, and you were saying those deductibles and transcending Obamacare are so high, and now the Obamacare deductibles are actually higher than what uh, what I was advocating for in in transcending Obamacare and. I think there's a way to make the criticism of high deductibles under Obamacare correctly, which is to say high deductibles are one thing, but high deductibles combined with higher premiums and narrower networks is a bad deal for a lot of consumers. It can be legitimate to criticize the high deductibles in Obamacare because they haven't been associated for most people with lower premiums and better access to care. However, I think your broader point is absolutely right that there are a lot of Republicans and a lot of conservatives who have made criticisms of Obamacare that have been about short-term politics rather than with a mind of what is it we want the healthcare system to look like in the future. That's something that in my writing, I've tried very hard to be careful about. And in fact, for example, to take narrow networks as an example, I've defended narrow networks in Obamacare in the sense that the reason why we have narrow networks in Obamacare is that was one of the few things that Obamacare didn't regulate. So Obamacare regulated the way you had to structure insurance, the kinds of things you had to cover, the, the copay type structure, et cetera. But it didn't regulate the kind of network you had. You had to have adequate network, quote unquote, it had to have an adequate network. But other than that, insurers had free reign to design networks the way they wanted. What they found is consumers preferred plans that had narrower networks and lower premiums to plans that had broader networks and higher premiums. So yes, uh, the plans in Obamacare have narrower networks because consumers wanted them. And I think that that's something that uh, a lot of the conversation about narrow networks seems to ignore. And I just wish that we had more conversations like that about letting consumers choose the kinds of plans they want. We, the experts, quote unquote, might be very surprised by what consumers would pick if they had more agency in the kind of insurance they could buy. I think that's an interesting point. And I do want to drill on one thing because in the language of consumers choose, I agree with what you're saying, but I'm not sure they're happy about the choice they're making. And because I think, the prices are so high, I think. If the prices were a lot lower, they but, would be happy with it. Yeah, but healthcare is in certain ways mechanistic. It is expensive because medical care is expensive. And, and insurers, they take a cut. There's no doubt about it. But the cut isn't, I think it's not as big as people think it is. and. The reason prices are high, and there are trade-offs in here, and we should talk about some of them, but the reasons prices are high is that if you want pretty generous insurance, it's going to be expensive. And people will, to the extent that they can't afford more generous insurance, end up choosing you know, more, less and less generous insurance. And sometimes it means very high deductibles, could mean high premiums, could mean narrow networks, could mean all three, could mean other things as well. But the thing that I have been sort of updating my own thinking on amidst the Affordable Care Act is just how angry that's going to make folks because, you know, folks who came from the employer world and had better insurance or we, Sarah Cliff went out to Kentucky and spoke to these Trump voters and they were pissed off because they wanted the Medicaid. They saw these folks who were poorer than them and weren't working 
And they were getting this reasonably generous care through Medicaid. Right. And they looked at their own premiums and their own deductibles, and they were furious about it. And so I guess that's one place where I am a little unclear of how you think it will work out. Because, yeah, consumers will choose that if they don't have the money to choose something that they would see as better. But that is the choice that has led to anger. Like That is a choice that is why Mitch McConnell sees an opportunity in criticizing high deductibles, not because people... People are choosing high deductible plans because that's all they can afford. Yeah, a couple things I would say about that. First, on the specific point of the difference between Medicaid and the non-group or individual market for health insurance that Obamacare spends a lot of time addressing and, and changing. The argument that we make in, in Transcending Obamacare, and for those who want to download it, I would recommend going, making sure you check out the second edition of Transcending Obamacare, which we published in September of 2016 at my new think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, freeop.org, because there's a number of new chapters in there that I think would be interesting to your listeners. The thing we are we advocate for is actually merging those two markets, making it one market so there isn't – the people aren't treated differently if their income is below the poverty line and they're on, med, on quote, unquote, Medicaid versus above the poverty line on, and, on, on, quote, unquote, Obamacare. We should have a unified system in which people buy tax credits or have tax credits to purchase the insurance uh, that, and health care that's best for them. So I think that's one way to address the inequity of the difference between Medicaid and the individual market under Obamacare. There's other inequities too, such as the poor access to physicians and, and providers under Medicaid. But more broadly, the point you're making is that what do people want? People want that access to health coverage. They want it to be a reasonably fair system. And there are ways to achieve that by reforming the system we have and taking the dollars we spend already and, again, allocating them in a way that creates a true safety net for the people who need it but gradually tails off as you rise in income towards the middle class and, and the upper income population. And a big part of the challenge with this, the system we have today and what people find unfair about it is that they're paying a lot of money and they're not getting a lot in return. To your point about, well, it's like a balloon and you squeeze on one of the balloon and it comes out the other way, that's where I disagree profoundly because – if you look at the rest of the economy, and this goes back to the discussion of whether healthcare is part of the rest of the economy or not, if you look at the rest of the economy, if you look at smartphones, if you look at even automobiles, if you look at food, all these things have become more plentiful and higher of higher quality and lower cost over time relative to what they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We all remember the famous scene in Wall Street where Gordon Gecko has the, the, the phone, the, you know, the cell phone that's like, you know, the size of a brick and a half, right? Think of all the computing power we have in our hands today. The reason why that hasn't happened in healthcare is because we haven't allowed it to. And I think that's a big part of what free marketeers are, are really trying to advocate for. It's about making sure that you create the room for innovation. And the way to drive innovation in particular is to have consumers demand it because they take their healthcare dollars to the people who provide them services at the lowest cost and the highest quality. You know, if you look at the rest of the economy again, and this goes back to Clayton Christensen and the innovator's dilemma. Where does innovation happen, according to Clayton Christensen? It happens at the low end of the market, right? It's Toyota that comes in making so-called cheap cars that are reliable and affordable and cost $5,000 or $10,000 in, in that era, right? And then they work their way up and build Lexus and build all the luxury cars. That's how innovation usually works. We can allow that to happen in healthcare if we just roll back all the regulations that prevent it from happening. I'm going to plant a flag that I 
disagree with this for reasons I put up earlier, but I, I, I want to, I worry I'll get too deep in this. I actually want to ask you a separate question that's related sure. to it. Sure. Speaking of the regulations, one of the arguments about Obamacare is that it regulates what insurers have to cover too tightly. Mm-hmm. And it particularly, there's a lot of discussion about the essential benefits, which are sort of 10 categories of benefit that any insurance to qualify as whatever it's called, credible insurance under Obamacare, it has to qualify for. So the 10 are, it's ambulatory patient services, which are outpatient services, emergency services, hospitalization, maternity and newborn care, mental health and substance abuse disorders, prescription drugs, rehabilitative services, lab services, preventive and wellness and chronic disease management, and then pediatric services. Now, I hear people talk a lot about how this sort of essential benefits category is bad, but I don't hear them do that often to sort of say what in it would they like to strike. I'm curious if you have specific pieces of that that you think should not be in there. Sure. So, you know, what I would say is that in general, I don't like the idea of a one-size-fits-all prescriptiveness. I think there should be more room for states and localities and insurers and consumers to decide what do they want insurance to cover. What we find, generally speaking, in insur- private insurance markets is that a lot of the things that Obamacare lists in that in that list in the, in the Affordable Care Act are things that people want in their insurance. They're not actually that controversial. I've never believed, and I think there are some Republicans who do believe incorrectly, that there's a lot of fat to be cleaned out of Obamacare's high premiums from essential health benefits. I don't think that's right because I do think that a lot of things that that are in essential health benefits in the ACA are in your standard employer-based insurance plan that, that people do like. There are a couple areas where we ought to think more about what we're doing. One in particular is maternity coverage. And that's not because we don't want people to have health insurance when they go into labor and and, and have babies. My, my wife just uh, gave birth uh, last September, and, and we're very happy and lucky to have a healthy healthy young son. And, and so I fully appreciate the value of having maternity coverage included in my health insurance. But if you talk to actuaries, the people who actually do the economic math around how insurance works, they'll tell you that the requirement in the ACA that all plans have to cover maternity coverage has created a lot of distortion and adverse selection, which has driven and priced a lot of people out of the market rather than including them. And so the way I think about it, there's there's two almost ways I think about it. One is just the full- Do, do you want to explain why? Just unpack that for a minute. Yeah, sure. So if you have maternity coverage for women of childbearing age, and a lot of women take use of that, then- their health expenditures are going to be very large for that period of time, which means that relative to older women who aren't of childbearing age, they're going to effectively have to pay a little bit more for insurance because Obamacare also says you can't charge a lot more to older people Mm -hmm. than younger people. So older women are having to pay more for health insurance and also men of comparable age are having to pay more for health insurance. Now, again, this is none of this is to say that we shouldn't want maternity coverage to be for people to have it and to subsidize it where necessary. But from an economic standpoint, including that in acute care insurance that has to be sold through Obamacare has created a Effects that make the insurance more expensive. And so one thing that I've been thinking about, it's not in the text of Transcending Obamacare, our 102-page white paper, but it's something I've been thinking about, is how to solve that puzzle. How to say, 
let's make sure that people have maternity coverage, but maybe separated it out from the broader insurance package and have it be a rider that can be subsidized separately so that you're not introducing distortions in the insurance market that drive people out. Because our goal, of course, is to make sure that everybody can afford health insurance, not just that particular cohort. I think that's actually a great example, though, because that is, I agree with you that not everything is a balloon where you squeeze it and you know the, the air comes out in another piece. But a bunch of these things are like that. And, mm-hmm. and that, I think, is one of them. And it's a little bit to what you're saying. Now, I think you can make an argument that Obamacare or whatever is, the way I would put it, insufficiently subsidized. And so we end up driving people out when what we need is to make things more affordable through subsidies. But even if you don't believe that, what we're sort of discussing here and what we're often, I think, discussing in healthcare are trade-offs between how narrowly or broadly costs are distributed. So if we were making it so that older women and young men had to pay less because maternity care was not included in the benefit package, that would mean the costs fell more heavily on the women of childbearing age who, who have to pay more for it. Or similarly, you brought up a couple minutes ago the age ratings, where I think it's that you can only charge an older person three times what you can charge a younger person. And I know in your plan, I think that's at five to one. And you know where you put it at three to one and five to one, I think totally reasonable debate to have. But wherever you put it, you are dealing on some level with you're either going to make it more expensive for older people or you're going to make it more expensive for younger people. That's assuming that the consumption of healthcare and the prices in healthcare are static, that you're just taking a fixed pool of demand and a fixed set of prices and redistributing them based on who you want to bear those costs. But it doesn't actually work that way because the more you subsidize the care, either through third-party payment by mandating that all insurers have to cover something or subsidizing directly through the premium support that you give to, to subsidize the premium so people can just buy this health insurance and it covers that, you're actually artificially boosting demand and artificially boosting the pricing power of the providers of that service. So take maternity care as an example. If you make it so that maternity coverage is, quote unquote, free to everyone in the sense that it's subsidized by health insurance and you're not directly paying for it, well, what's going to happen? The labor and delivery departments of every hospital are going to raise their prices because they know that they can because it's all covered by the government. Right. This is the challenge is that if you do what we do in America and have been doing, which is to subsidize the cost of these services but not regulate their prices, you create one set of cost problems. And if you do it the other way, which is that you give consumers a choice and then subsidize them but give them more freedom in what their insurance plan should cover, how they need to direct the health spending that they control – then they have the agency to say, you know what, when we get our baby delivered, we're going to take it to this hospital, run this hospital, because that hospital is a high-quality hospital that's also charging less money, and that means more money left over in our our health savings account or whatever it is. I think I more or less agree with that, except that the thing I would say is I slightly feel that these are two different issues, which is when you said artificial demand there – I would locate the source of demand earlier in the in the process of conceiving a child than I think you did there. I think demand for health services is obviously not entirely static and particularly not when you get to more optional health services. But demand for older people to have health insurance, I think, is mostly a function of how many older people there are. Demand for maternity care is, I think, mostly a function of, of how many children people are conceiving. And Then there's a question of once that demand exists, how do you try to control the prices people are paying? And there, I think that there are different views on the table. But that, to me, is part of the problem with trying to structure so much of our cost control and so much of our approaches just through the the singular question of insurance. Now, 
one option, as you say, is raw price controls, right? The government comes in and says, here is how much a delivery costs. That's what they do in France. Another option is to, you know, I think this is a little bit more where you are, try to give insurers incentives and give consumers incentives to choose insurance that does a better job structuring your network so you're going to the place where you can deliver a, a child at an affordable rate. But sort of no matter which of these you choose, the question of whether everybody's insurance has to include maternity care or not, I think is just still a very important and difficult question. I think that I don't think you've done this, but I think a lot of conservatives have convinced themselves that there are easy trade-offs here, that there are free lunches, that as somebody said to me, I was on the show with somebody the other day and they're like, well, it's absurd that men have to have birth control included in their insurance. And you can think what you want on birth control, but just the answer is if you don't do that, it'll just cost women more. And I do think that some of this stuff about who has to pay is really a question where what Obamacare did was take a lot of costs that exist in the system and spread them out. Yeah. And what we had before Obamacare was a place where folks with, say, a pre-existing condition or folks who didn't have insurance and got very sick, they paid an extraordinary cost, a health cost and a financial cost, but other people didn't feel it. And See, then I think the question is, the, the you're asking is a little bit like, can you get somewhere in the middle? Yeah. I think the birth control example is a great one. And I actually wrote a piece for The Atlantic I want to say five years ago now about this, when HHS first put in, uh, installed the mandates about how uh, contraception would be covered in the AC insurance plans. Uh, and I made the point that actually, whatever you think of the value of birth control or whether you think just on a fairness or equity basis, birth control should be part of an insurance plan, the economic fact of it is by f requiring that all FDA-approved drugs had to be covered, first-dollar coverage by ACA plans, you're giving pharmaceutical companies a massive incentive to charge higher prices for things that if you buy them on the open market without insurance, cost sometimes 10 bucks for a month's supply of oral contraceptives for standard generic oral contraceptives. And that draws me to a broader point that I think we've danced around a little bit, which is the vast majority of healthcare that we actually need isn't that expensive and or doesn't need to be that expensive. 90% of the prescriptions dispensed in the United States are for drugs that are actually generic, mm -hmm. that don't need to be more expensive than buying a can of Coke or a bottle of water from your local convenience store. A lot of the things that we need in terms of hospital care don't need to be expensive. They're actually fairly old technologies that, uh, that have been around for a long time. And a lot of that's driven, again, by the fact that since particularly since Medicare and Medicaid were passed in 1965, but more importantly, when employer-based health insurance was excluded from taxation in the 40s and 50s, we've had this system where people were massively removed from the cost and value of, of the health care they consumed. That is very a very important point that, yes, again, I actually don't have any problem subsidizing the cost of birth control in principle for people who need those costs subsidized. But the fact is, economically, the more aggressively you subsidize it, the more you're driving the price of it up. And that's the problem is you actually paradoxically make a lot of these things less affordable if you aren't thoughtful about the way you provide financial assistance to the people who need it. So let me ask you one last question on healthcare. So Republicans are now trying to figure out what is the structure of repeal and replace. They've considered something where they would repeal Obamacare, but have a sort of two-year time delay where they can figure out a replacement. Donald Trump has suggested maybe he doesn't want that. They're very far, as far as I can tell, from any agreement on a plan. Do you think that when it comes down to it, 
Republicans, congressional Republicans, and for that matter, the Trump administration, are prepared to absorb the pain of figuring out a full replacement? Do you think they really, when they have to do this fight for real, are going to want this? Or are they going to try to sort of like skip out with more cosmetic changes or some other sort of dodge? I think right now it's very hard to say. It's an incredibly dynamic situation and a lot of different people with a lot of different points of view are weighing in. It's a member-to-member conversation. And what I mean by that is individual senators and individual congressmen and the president and his team, they're all arguing at that level. A lot of times when it comes to technical policy considerations, it's the staffs that actually do most of the writing and most of the arguing and then the members just sign on. But this is one of those situations where because it's so politically important uh, and it's been such a central aspect of Republican campaigns for the last six, seven years, there's been a lot more member-to-member discussion of what to do. And I think there are plenty of worst-case scenarios that you can envision in terms of Just like the criticism of Obamacare from people like me has been that technically it was flawed and that a lot of decisions were made politically that didn't end up resulting in in, in a good policy outcome. There's a a high risk that Republicans could repeat those mistakes, that they could have a a party line vote to pass some quote unquote repeal and replace through reconciliation, which doesn't actually tackle a lot of the things that the ACA does and you'd want to reform or improve and that the policy outcome is worse. I have mentioned every time I I've had the opportunity, the fact that President Trump himself has been a staunch advocate of universal coverage, not just this uh, since he's been president, but during the presidential campaign and for many years before that. I know you've cited some of, uh, of those quotations yourself. I think that's very important. And I hope that uh, President Trump uses that as a, a measuring stick for the legislation that comes out of, of Congress. Congress doesn't appear to have that view right now. Congress's view appears to be, well, Trump says whatever he wants, but he's not really a policy wonk, so we're just going to pass what we want to pass, and he's just going to sign it because he's not really going to care. On this particular issue, I'm not sure that's the case. I think his his view about universal coverage is deeply held, and I happen to agree with it, so maybe I'm biased, but I'm, I'm, I hope that that leads to a better process. I could easily see a process that's very political and where the reforms are not meaningfully better than what we had in 2010. All right. Ovik Roy, um, I appreciate you being here today. I want to be respectful of your time. So here is, here is the final beloved question. What are sure. three books that you've read that have influenced you, that matter to you, that you think the audience should pick up? Gosh, uh, so many uh, so many options. But for your audience, I'll, I'll pick three that are uh, more recent, relatively more recent and vintage. Let me start with a book by uh, going back to the earlier part of our conversation by a Harvard professor named Leah Wright Rigger called The Loneliness of the Black Republican. It's an amazing history of black Republicans, literally the Republicans who are black and what they tried to do to advocate for uh, for various policies and reforms and also advocate for more blacks to vote Republican from, I believe it's dated from 1932, from the first uh, Roosevelt uh, victory to 1980 when Reagan became president. It's a, it's an amazing book in so many ways. And obviously, there are plenty of things for blacks not to be nostalgic for from 1932. But one perhaps to be nostalgic for is you really had two parts 
parties competing aggressively for black support in a way that isn't true today. And I hope we can get back to that point again. And I think anyone who's interested in seeing two major parties compete for the black vote, it's a tremendously interesting book that helps explain how that fell apart gradually over time with particular important moments in in, in the New Deal and in, in 1964. Uh, the second book I'll mention is Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, H-I-H-A-I-D-T is how you spell his last time. If you haven't had him on your show, I hope you do. He's a, he's a tremendous, tremendously interesting uh, guy. And something that I'd been thinking about a lot in the 90s and 2000s was what I encountered in my life experience, which was a lot of people who were temperamentally conservative but politically liberal and temperamentally liberal but politically conservative and how a lot of things we think about as progressive and conservative and liberal kind of get mixed together in the way average non-ideological or non-political people think about politics. And what Jonathan Haidt does I think really well is he understands and appreciates and characterizes using a lot of empirical research how – there are six moral dimensions, he calls them, where a lot of us uh, think about uh, politics and other things. And liberals are really focused on particularly two of them, equality and uh, avoidance of harm, whereas uh, conservatives tend to look at a lot of uh, other of these moral dimensions and that the reason why conservatives and liberals don't understand each other is because of the way they think about these dimensions in different ways. So I think that's an incredibly useful way certainly as a conservative who I want conservatives to appeal more to people who think morally in a liberal way, it's an important way to think about how to appeal to liberals with conservative ideas and conservative principles and vice versa. And then the last book I'll mention is a book called Rationalism in Politics and Other Essays, which is a collection of essays by Michael Oakeshott, a British conservative political philosopher who is probably best known to, to some of your listeners because uh, Andrew Sullivan did his PhD mm-hmm. thesis at Harvard under Harvey Mansfield, another famous uh, conservative political philosopher, on Michael Oakeshott. And the titular essay, Rationalism in Politics, I think is a beautiful articulation of classically conservative political philosophy. In it, he talks about the, the ancient Chinese philosophy philosopher Chuang Tzu and some other people who've articulated this idea before. But I would summarize it this way, that if you take a recipe and you try to cook something out of a recipe, you might do a good job about it, especially if you're a talented chef. But most people are probably going to mess it up the first time. It probably takes five times or 10 times to get it right. And we all know that grandma who's done the same recipe a hundred times, who who does it incredibly well and doesn't even have to ever look at a recipe because she has an intuitive sense of how to make the pasta or how to how to make the curry or whatever it happens to be. Oakshot's argument is that that's true of everything in life, and that's especially true of politics, and that there's a movement in politics that you can actually do politics by recipe. If you understand these basic policies, you understand these basic political principles, it's very easy to govern. It's very easy to manage it's very easy to be a statesman. And Oakshot's point is that no, experience matters, that understanding custom and tradition matters. You have to be very careful in taking a person or an entity or an institution and throwing it over that has a lot of experience to offer because a lot of that subtlety that makes life work gets lost. And I think he's a great guy to, to for everyone to read, conservative or liberal, to understand that classical sense of what it means to be a conservative. Overcroy, thank you very much. Ezra, it was an honor. Thank you to Ovik Roy. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week.